This is the last of a short series, uh, a three-part series, on the doctrine of Scripture. And tonight we are uh, looking at the sufficiency of Scripture. And to study this together, we're going to go to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And before we read God's word, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for that incredible picture that we have in Isaiah 55 of the nourishing properties of your word. Of your intention for your word. To achieve that for which you send it out. Let us know joy and peace and fruitfulness as a result of studying what we're looking at tonight. And in all of this, may it be for your renown. This we pray in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. So let's read from 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verses 1 to 9, what Paul does is... is paints a picture of some false teachers, people who have, in effect, moved on from the word of God, forms of godliness, but denying its power, etc. Paul then, in verse 10, continues by encouraging Timothy to look at his example, and let's read from there. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worst, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. And have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. This is God's great words. Uh, author Jonathan Lehman, in a recent book called Reverberation, uh, a book uh, that has the word of God, the scripture as its subject, invites uh, the reader to do a, a fascinating mental exercise at the beginning of his book. He says, picture in your mind... All that your church is. So picture in your mind all that Charlotte Chapel is and does. And now for a moment, take away the building, take away the programs, take away creche and Sunday school, musical instruments and bulletins and the like. Take away everything but the people of the church itself, so that what you have effectively is the church Imagine, if you like, all of the members of Charlotte Chapel standing together in a field. 
I appreciate it's February. You might want to imagine that in the summer and it's warm, you can make it as flowery as you like. It's a sunny day. Nobody's getting cold and wet. But once you have this picture of the true church in your head, peeled back to its very core, the question is then asked of us, what? What is absolutely necessary for life and for growth? Do we need, need being the operative word, the building back? Do we need the bulletin? Do we need the musical instruments? Now, someone will jump in and say, oh, surely we need some water for baptizing people, bread and wine for the Lord's Supper. Well, both of these things are absolutely necessary for constituting the church as a church. But leaving that discussion aside for a moment, what is absolutely necessary for life and growth? Lehman's claim is God's word, the Holy Scriptures, the means by which God's Holy Spirit creates new life in unbelievers and growth in those who are believers. His claim is someone must pick up a Bible and read it. Somebody has to explain it so that the people will understand it. And when this happens, the Spirit is at work in and through the Word, in people's hearts, causing them to believe the words and give proper due weight to them. This is then what happens, he says. The people repeat the words in their songs and in their prayers. They discover most remarkably that they can speak to God as guided by these biblical words. That's prayer. They also then repeat the words of God to one another throughout the week. They help each other discern his will for their lives. Then their lives begin to take on more of a shape in correlation with his word, so that they begin to actually live differently at home and in the workplace and in their communities. They discover that these words are indeed life-giving, hope-giving, and love-producing. Then what? They run and they call others who have not yet heard these words to come and hear these words. The words producing actions, those actions producing uh, words and more work together to give witness to the power of God to salvation. None of those things that we've removed in that illustration are bad things. We are served so well by our building, by our musical instruments, well, maybe not by the building so much, but by our instruments and our musicians and our bulletins, our screens, our PowerPoint, all of these things. We are served so well by these things. But peel it all back. What is absolutely necessary for the church to be the church, to be formed and to grow? I think it's God's word. This is the claim the Bible makes for itself. God builds his church and grows his church by his word. And this word is comprehensively sufficient for all we need to know about God and how he wants us to live. And I think 2 Timothy 3 is one of, if not the clearest passage in the Bible for showing us the importance of this teaching within the realm of the doctrine of Scripture called the sufficiency of Scripture. And Paul's exhortation to Timothy in here 
almost as a father to a son, is an exhortation that still is relevant for us today. Stand firm on the sufficient scriptures. They teach us everything we need to know about everything that truly matters. When you look at verses 1 to 9, which we didn't read uh, in our reading a a few moments ago, but in verses 1 to 9, the the background to Paul's encouragement is that there are teachers who have not submitted themselves to the truth of God's word, but have actually distorted the truth of God's word. Their way of life, their conduct, their teaching, their doctrine, are errant. In verse 5, Paul says of them, they have this form of godliness, but it's false. In verse 8, he says their teachings are so now so far from the truth that they are actually opposed to the truth. And as a result, verse 8 tells us, quite simply, they are disqualified from the faith. It seems like the people he's talking about are the very ones that he warned the Ephesian elders about in Acts 20, those who would rise up from within their number, who probably started out on the right track in terms of an understanding of God's word. And then what Paul does in verse 10 to 13, deliberately hold himself up as a comparison. Look at them, Timothy, and look at me. Look at my teaching, my doctrine, my way of life, my conduct. And it would be quite plain for us to see, for Timothy to see, certainly. Paul is a Bible man. And in comparison, these men are just going from bad to worse. The question that is automatically arising then in that uh, as, as his hearers read this, and as Timothy, uh, sorry, as his hearers hear this, and as, as Timothy hears this, is what will Timothy do? Whose example will Timothy follow? What will undergird his life and his ministry? Verse 14 tells us Paul, Paul's encouragement to him. As for you, continue in what you have learned. The Greek word here for continue is Many, which means, actually means stay or remain. So stay put. So it's as if Paul in the first uh, nine verses had said, look at these guys. They had, they had kind of started off well, but they've moved further and further away. They're kind of in motion away from the truth. But as for you, what should you do? Stay. Stand firm on what you have learned on the scriptures that are sufficient for your teaching and for your conduct. They tell us these scriptures are sufficient for teaching us all we need to know about salvation, how to be saved, doctrine, what we should believe, and conduct, how we should live. And those will be the three things that we're going to concentrate on just now. Now, I have to say, before we get into the salvation on our first point, some people think that the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture claims that the Bible tells us absolutely everything that anyone in the world needs to ever know. Well, that's not true. The sufficiency, this sufficiency that we talk about in relation to the sufficiency of Scripture is not sufficiency of specific information like how should a plumber fix a leaking tap, for example. But it's the sufficiency of divine words. So the sufficiency of Scripture tells us everything we, plumbers included, need to know about God, how we should live, and what we should teach. So let's look at the first thing together, okay? Uh, That the word of God is sufficient for salvation, showing us how to be saved. 
Verse 14 says, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. That is Paul, his mentor. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. So, these scriptures have been taught to Timothy by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. It's certainly been part and parcel of the Apostle Paul's discipleship of Timothy. And it's incredible to see, again, what kind of impact discipleship within the home can actually have on someone. The, the, the testimony of Paul, of, of Eunice uh, and his grandmother Lois, or Timothy's grandmother Lois, is, is an incredible thing. It's saying certainly that he has known the scriptures from infancy. Now it's not saying that he knew all of them or he didn't know Genesis to Deuteronomy, for example, off by heart. Perhaps he did. They were very good at Bible memorization in those days in terms of the law. But more that through what he was taught, he was given wisdom from the Old Testament scriptures in particular here to know the way of salvation even to see Jesus Christ himself, the subject of this book, of the Holy Scriptures, the one to whom every scripture points. I bought a new Bible for my little girl uh, just before Christmas time. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I remember just reading the introduction to this Bible and just thinking it was, it was an outstanding description of what the scriptures show us and the scriptures teach us. It says this, Now some people think the Bible is just a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what God has done. No, the Bible isn't just a book of rules. The Bible is most of all a story. And there are lots of stories in the Bible But all of the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of this story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. It's true. Jesus said in John chapter 5, these are the scriptures that testify about me, as he was referring to the Old Testament then. This is why these scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation and are sufficient for leading us to salvation because they lead us to our rescuer and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, in whom there is the hope of eternal life. So the Old Testament foretelling So clearly, the coming of Christ, the Gospels telling us the story of Christ, of what he taught and what he did, particularly his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead three days later. Acts tell us that Christ was preached. The epistles explain Christ for us. And Revelation reveals that Christ is currently reigning and soon to return. The Old Testament, New Testament scriptures together are sufficient to make us wise for salvation. The big problem we have in these days is skepticism about the Bible. And a skepticism about the Bible is problematic because it hides Christ from view. 
everyone is shortchanged. You're left with no Christ at all, no gospel at all, and a subpar, diluted gospel will save no one. How many people today are being duped into thinking they're saved when in fact God's wrath remains on them? They're still in their sins because a gospel has been preached that is not biblical. The call for us is the same as it was for Timothy. Don't be moved from the sufficiency of the scripture that are sufficient for showing us how to be saved. And the obvious implication of this, the obvious application of this, is read your Bible, know your Bible, read verses of Scripture to your kids, tell them what the Bible says, show them how it all points to Jesus Christ and how He is the Savior. Use it in your evangelism as you're sharing the gospel with people. You can share words of Scripture with people, no doubt from memory, many of you. But there's something significant about showing them it <laughs> in the scriptures. Here it is. Look, read this with me. Maybe you're here tonight and you, you aren't a Christian. You're thinking about Christianity, wondering what it's all about. Let me see. It's just all about Jesus Christ. And the way you're going to find out about Jesus Christ and wonder who he is, what he claimed to be, who he claimed to be, what he claims we need to do in order to have eternal life in heaven with him rather than eternal punishment in hell without him is to read our Bibles. Read your Bible. Let us help you in that. Let us read it with you one to one so that we might be able to explain it to you and show you how it connects. It's sufficient for showing us how to be saved. Sufficient also, secondly, for showing us what we should believe in terms of our doctrine. Verse 16 tells us all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking. Let's pause there first of all. Scripture is God-breathed, theonustos. It's quite, this is what we call the inspiration of scripture, not that someone was kind of motivated by something that they heard from God, but that actually these are the breathed out words of God. So to illustrate, when you speak, your word is essentially you breathe. This is Liam breathed. Your breath, conditioned by your mind, produces speech, and technically you breathe out words. That's what it means to be God breathed. And what we read here is that this God breathed word is useful. It's profitable for teaching. It teaches us what the right track is. It teaches us what is right to believe, what doctrines we should hold to, what teaching we should be seeking to study and build our lives on. It teaches us how the Christians should live their lives, it teaches the church how it should be organized. It tells us all sorts of things. There's a myriad of things that it teaches us. The obvious implication of this is that the preaching of the word of God is of central importance in the place of a local church. But needless to say, its profitableness, its usefulness does not stop with the preaching. It continues throughout the church through the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the, the missions work, through friendships and families, through one-to-ones, 
all of this operating on the same page by being word-orientated and Christ-centered. So elders and deacons are taking the word into their specific roles to be guided by it, to know what to do in their work. Parents are learning to bring the Bible into the home and to teach their kids, even to find out how they as parents should be conducting themselves. Husbands and wives thinking about the centrality of the the word of God as they relate to one another and how they can better reflect Jesus Christ to a watching world. Knowing God's word is sufficient for teaching us all that is right in terms of what we should believe and therefore helps us understand what is wrong. That's why we see God's word is useful and profitable for refuting error. This is what's entailed in the second thing there, in rebuking. It tells us when we go off track, we must expect to find error constantly rising up in contention against the truth. It's just the devil's ploy. It, is, it has been his way. And the problem I think that we see nowadays is that one of the places we see error creeping in most significantly is in relation even to this doctrine of Scripture, what we believe about the Bible. And I think this doctrine of Scripture has been over many decades, but certainly I'm seeing it nowadays, I believe, threatened by many different movements that just seek to dilute or extract key things about the Bible, negate its authority, and so on. I think there are three main isms that are difficult for us here and that are, that are a particular danger. There is liberalism. That has been a problem for a long time. Who see the Bible is not necessarily God-breathed, but it, it doesn't, it's not all the Word of God that some bits of it are the Word of God. Some key teachings of the Bible are viewed as, inconven- as inconvenient as a rotten tooth. So they need to be extracted. Whether it's a question over the existence of a literal hell, or the punitive nature of Christ's death on the cross for us, recent debates on the legitimacy of homosexual practice for the Christian, and a whole manner of doctrines peel back the layers, and I think what you get to What it all comes down to is a negation of the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Alongside that liberalism, there's something of a new mysticism that creeps in, that some people think it's entirely spiritual thing to spend an hour in a service singing songs and spending time asking God to speak to them, and the whole time their Bibles are shut and in the pew in front of them. They say they want to close their eyes and feel God's presence, but imagine even... Well, that looks like practically. Imagine sitting on a, next to your friend on a couch and saying, don't talk to me, I just want to feel your presence. God has been clear. He's communicated himself to us in his word. He has spoken clearly to us. And then there's the third one is pragmatism. The, the church in our nation, in my opinion, faces its biggest threat from pragmatism. From those who seek to do just what seems to work best. And I think pragmatic decision-making can serve us well enough, but only as it yields to the authority of Scripture. 
The problem is, often it doesn't. G.I. Packer himself predicted a problem in this regard years ago in a series of lectures he did in 1965 when he lectured on the Bible. He says, the church that is ruled by what works and not by what God has said is doomed to be disorientated. Such a church will wander around from gimmick to gimmick like drunks in a fog. No idea where they're going. No real direction. And what has happened to the church today? It has forgotten what is necessary. It has lost its confidence in the word of God and its confidence in the sufficiency of the scripture. Let's not fall foul of the same error. I praise God that we are a Bible-believing church, but let's never take that for granted. Let's hold one another accountable in this regard. Certainly, you as a church, hold your leaders accountable for what is taught. Make sure that even the slightest hint of error can be snuffed out. We must continue to give ourselves as a church to the faithful exposition of the Bible on Sundays, to the faithful consideration of God's word together as we gather around it in our home groups, and even as we seek to minister to one another one-to-one and in one another's homes, over dinner and so on, which seemingly more informal areas of our lives together. Praise God that we have a Bible we can open and share a truth that we will all love and enjoy. So the scripture is sufficient for salvation, showing us how to be saved. Sufficient for doctrine, showing us what to believe. Thirdly, sufficient for showing us how we should live conduct. All scripture is God-breathed, verse 16, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It provides for us the authoritative truth that we need in order to make good judgments about what's right and wrong for us in our life. There is correction. It is sufficient to enable us to profit from its correction. Where we are rebuked, basically, for our error, but more so in in correction, helped to know what is the right track to get back onto. So the word that's used for correction here is the Greek word, Uh, that can be translated basically straighten up. So something is crooked, it's not aligned, it needs to be straightened up. And those who accept the Bible's correction, those of us in our local church who trust in the sufficiency of God's word will be able to serve one another so well when we go off track to show us exactly what the right track is and to encourage one another onto that track. And then the training aspect of it is it teaches us how to stay on track. It gives us all the authoritative truth that we need in order to stay on track and live out the Christian life, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, as is the Apostle Paul in particular, his frequent refrain for the churches that he writes to. Live in order to please God. How? Well, read your Bible. We can be taught well. We can hear those propositional truths come forth from various teachers. We can see the encouragement of narratives and follow people's good and godly example. There are many ways that we learn. There are many ways that we are trained. 
how to stay on track. I think all of this, and needless to say, necessitates that we are a people of the book. Because if God is a speaking God, we must be a listening people. And we must be a people who read the word and meditate on the word and know the blessedness. Actually, in Psalm 1, it's a plural, the blessednesses of the man who trusts in the word and meditates on that law day and night, who soaks it in and enjoys Christ the subject of scripture, enjoys knowing God, the author of scripture, and enjoys the fact that we do not need to be a rudderless people, but we are given direction and guidance in terms of how we live our lives through the sufficient, authoritative, infallible word of God. My encouragement for us if you want to be particular in applying this, not just to read your Bible, my encouragement would be to memorize parts of the Bible, key passages, key books, perhaps. And we can know the real benefit of this because when we study our Bible and when we memorize our Bible, when we do as the psalmist said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, it helps us in terms of our of our great desire, conformity to Christ, to be more like Jesus, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel so that more people may see Jesus reflected in our lives and so come to him or long to know him. That we can indeed hide that word in our hearts that we might not sin against him and know know what it is to stand up under the temptation when sin presses down on us. What's more we can have comfort and counsel for people we love in the family of God together here even for those who aren't Christians who are not part of this family how often have we been in situations where we just feel lost for words in some respect when someone has shared a concern with us or given account of some suffering that they've experienced or a real struggle a paralysis in decision making or something like that Knowing the word of God, trusting the sufficiency of the word of God gives us confidence to share the word of God and so serve one another well and with gladness and trust, not in our words, but in God's word. The word is sufficient for showing us how to be saved, for showing us what to believe, for showing us how to live. And I love the way Paul just brings this in. Having said that all scripture is profitable, he says in verse 17 that, all, that so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The image that's depicted there is of a place that is fully furnished. No need for a trip to Ikea. No need to go to any, pro- you know, you go into a property it's brilliant that it's fully furnished if you're rental and in, that, in, in the rental market that's what you're looking for fully furnished there is nothing lacking we as the people of God can lack it's an incredible thing to say isn't it we can lack nothing we're fully furnished 
by the word of God, not lacking anything. And the Bible's divine origin, its God-breathedness, secures its never-failing sufficiency for salvation, for doctrine, and for conduct. And how we need to be encouraged all the more to stand firm on this truth, just as Timothy was exhorted at the beginning. That all of Scripture, in all of Scripture, there is a wealth of truth to learn and to teach, command and encouragement, examples to follow and to avoid, narrative and proposition, poetry, prophecy, visions and dreams, wisdom and songs, whole range. And because it is sufficient, we can have confidence to teach the Bible to whomever, wherever, whenever, knowing that it and it alone is profitable. So remain loyal to it. See it lead others to faith. As these scriptures point to Jesus Christ, the subject of this holy book, knowing that in his word, God tells us everything we need to know about everything that matters, about Jesus Christ, how to believe in him, and Jesus Christ, how to follow him. Stand firm in the sufficiency of scripture. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We praise you that it truly endures. We praise you that your word is divinely authorized by you. It, it reveals who you are. It is in itself an extension of you, given that you have breathed it out. May we love reading it, studying it, treasuring it, not because, of its, it, not because of it itself or as an end, but because of whom it points to, Jesus Christ, and because of what we are exhorted to do and led to do by your Spirit, who applies such truth to our hearts. Let there be many through this church who come to hear of the Lord Jesus Christ through this word, whether from pulpit or pew. And may there be many who grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus because they have stood firm on the authority, the clarity, and sufficiency of your word, which shows us how we should live and what we should believe. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.